All right, well, good morning again on this first Sunday of Christmas. Over the last four Sundays in Advent, we've been using Luke's Gospel to examine some of the really amazing stories that surround the birth of Jesus Christ. And last week, we looked at the story itself of Jesus being born, of him coming to be with us. And, and this morning, what we're looking at is, uh, is who Jesus is as a child. Um, and the whole thing, over the last few weeks, I've just been reflecting on some of my own hopes and expectations that, uh, that, uh, that came upon me in the birth of each one of my boys. And, uh, and that's what the arrival of a child does to us, is it causes us to think a lot about who they might become and how we might participate in that. And uh, these, these, are, uh, these stories of Jesus as a child, or Jesus as a baby, are telling us a little bit about who he might become. Uh, these are two stories back to back. The first is Jesus as, a, as an eight-day-old infant, and the second is as a 12-year-old boy. Why don't you look with me here? This is Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 52. Hear the word of the Lord. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. And she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. That's the first story. Here's the second one. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. And his parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. 
And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting amongst the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at the understanding in his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be good and right, pleasing before you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And I pray that you would strengthen this servant and you would strengthen all of your servants and help us to see you, Lord Jesus. Help us to see you and see our consolation. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a story about a man named Paul Barton who has fascinated me over the last few weeks when I came across it. And, uh, and it's probably because I'm married to a pianist. She loves to fill our hearts with music, and I'm a music lover. But also because I love elephants, and elephants are amazing, regal, powerful, yet sophisticated and intelligent creatures. And, uh, and Paul Barton is a British man who lives in Thailand, and he is a classical pianist. And what he does is he travels to an elephant sanctuary, and he plays music for these elephants. And to understand the beauty of the story, you got to understand something about uh, these, uh, these elephants. Many of them grew up working animals. They were uh, beasts of burden in some way. And, uh, and so they would work in logging camps and trekking camps. People would ride them. And almost all of them, almost without exception, were abused in some way. They still bear the, these elephants still bear the scars of their life, uh, their, their, their mistreatment um, by their handlers. Many of them are blind. Many of them have their tusks removed and, and sold for money. And uh, almost by some fortunate coincidence, Paul, when he was doing a shot, he was doing a video playing music on the, on the side of the River Kwai, uh, he found that elephants were drawing near to him while he was playing the piano. They would come near and they would like sway back and forth to the music and, and they just really loved uh, what he was doing, and so he asked an elephant sanctuary, this this kind of this you know group of people that likes to rescue elephants, if he could come and play music for these traumatized animals, and they said yes. And if you go on YouTube, you can see him in the middle of nowhere in this massive park, surrounded by dirt and trees, set up this little upright piano and starts playing these timeless pieces, and elephants would just kind of come out of the woods and stand near him and sway, and they just loved being around him. Um, and he would move around this enormous park and set up in different places, and the story goes that they'll just like follow him around and listen to him play music. And the story, that I, the reason I'm telling you this story is because these elephants who have been trained to be afraid when they see a man coming, they've been trained to fear man. When they see this man coming, they see someone who's bringing something fundamentally good for them, who's looking to care for them in some way. 
And what we have here in this story, Luke begins with, uh, with um, claiming that he assembled these stories using eyewitness testimonies. These are the stories told um, by people who literally observed uh, Jesus. They were around him and they saw the things that he was. And in these stories, what we see are eyewitness testimonies to who he was as a child. And, uh, and so the question I just want to ask, are what, what are the observations that these people are making when they're around Jesus at a very young age? What are they seeing when they see Jesus? And there's so much to unpack across both of these stories, but I'm just going to say three things. I'm going to say that he is, um, that, that, that there are observations here about his purpose, that there are observations about how remarkable he is. It's just all over these, both of these stories. And there, there are observations about his devotion, okay? So his purpose, how remarkable he is, and his devotion. All right. First, observations about his purpose. Um, the, this is coming from the, the first story about Jesus where he's presented at the temple as a newborn baby. Um, and it's here uh, that we see this really touching scene where you see this elderly priest, Simeon, uh, sweep Jesus up in his arms and, and blessed him. And uh, Simeon, neither Simeon nor Anna are mentioned anywhere else in our scriptures, but we do see a few things about him, them, them both in this passage. And with Simeon, we know he's an elderly priest. Uh, we know that he's pious. We know that the Holy Spirit was upon him in a very special way. And we also know that God made Simeon a promise that he would not die before he sees the Lord's Christ. And when Simeon gazes down at the baby, at the baby Jesus, that's what he sees when he sees Jesus. He, he, it says, he thanked God for my eyes have seen your salvation. And when he sees Jesus, he sees the consolation of Israel. He sees redemption prepared by God in advance for the people. And, and, uh, and then Anna, who's also an, uh, an elderly woman in the temple, she's an elderly prophetess, also devout. She, at that moment, begins to prophesy. And, and she's thanking God for sending the redemption of Israel. This is what people are seeing. This is what Simon and Anna are seeing when they see Jesus at about eight days old. And both of these people are observing that somehow in this child... God is moving in dramatic ways with the explicit purpose of redemption for his people. Now, look, some of us here are parents, I know, and, uh, and I don't know about you, but I can't get enough of people saying incredible things about my own kids, right? But what do you think this did to Mary and Joseph while they're standing there witnessing uh, to Simeon and Anna saying these things about their own child? More importantly, what does it do to you? Like, what do you think about this? Redemption and salvation are weighty words. We, we don't just throw words like that around. And when you hear words like redemption uh, and salvation, does this sound like, I don't know, words, religious talk, things that people say in church? Or do you hear the answer to your deepest needs? I ask this because... Words like this only carry hope for people that see their need for it. Or even might feel desperate for it. And it's here that the Bible makes a grand presumption about each of us. I mean, each one of us. 
It teaches us that we were made for a relationship with God. That's what you were made for. Each of you were made for God's glory. And that our existence is just never sweeter than when we're in right relationship with God. And that every one of us, you and me, every one of us in this room, every one of you at home, we all carry with ourselves the burden of the disruption in our relationship with God that our sin has caused. And that all of our desperation, all of our longing, all of our strivings, all of our feelings of not measuring up, all of our inabilities to to control, all of it can be traced back to that reality about our relationship with God being disrupted. And so we aren't enjoying what we were made for. And listen, if we can't get the that then the redemption and salvation that Jesus brings with him when he comes into our world and draws near to each one of us will never be sweet. But the opposite is also, if that's true, the opposite is also true. That the better we understand the truth of who we are, the easier it is for us to confess our sins like when Stephen led us earlier in the service. The more we learn to hate our sin, the more we will long for Jesus and the redemption and are able to join our voices with Simeon's and Anna's in gratefulness. And the best news I have for you this morning is that that's the purpose that Jesus came for. That is the purpose that he came, to accomplish redemption and salvation. That is the resolute commitment that he makes of restoring what was broken in each one of us that we would find ourselves restored to the one that we made for. Now, that's a weighty purpose. That's a, that's, that's a grand purpose. And when we talk about this, what we're talking about is really the cosmic reordering of the existence of our, our own selves in the world around us. A purpose like that, somebody coming with a purpose like that would have to be remarkable indeed. And, and that's what we see in both of these stories. It's like all over both of these stories is Luke spending a lot of ink just trying to make the point that Jesus was incredibly impressive from day one. Uh, you see it when Simeon prophesies over Jesus. So, so Jesus, is a, Jesus is a baby that in eight years old, he merits this special prophecy over him. And, uh, and then um, Mary and Joseph marvel about what is said about Jesus. Verse 40 says that he grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Uh, in verse 77, four, sorry, 47, where he's in the temple and he's dialoguing with teachers of the law. He's dialoguing with religious authorities in the temple as a 12-year-old boy asking questions and offering insights. And the passage says that all who heard him were amazed at his understanding. That he was incredibly impressive. And then verse 52 again reiterates these points where it says, almost summarizing this whole thing, it says that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God. And man, you just get the impression that everywhere Jesus went, he was remarkable. That he was incredibly impressive. People were impressed by him at a very young age. And I know you know some pretty impressive people. I know a few. Many of you, it seems to me like every time I meet somebody in this church, I'm impressed by them. But the thing about impressive people is they have a way of showing us just how unimpressive we might be, right? When I was in college, there was a free par three golf course across town 
And uh, I had no experience with golf. I had no, like, love for golf. Uh, but it was a fun way for guys to hang out with each other. And if an afternoon, if, like, the, the weather was nice and we had the afternoon off, that's where you would probably find us just walking this little par three golf course. And uh, none of us were, were very good. But over time, we got to know the course and we kind of figured it out. And we got fairly good at it. And then I invited my friend Ryan. Now, Ryan had no experience with golf either, but he was an incredible athlete. Uh, he was the all-star of our intramural flag football team in school. <laughs> he was that kind of guy. And uh, we brought him, and I remember we had to show him how to grip a club. Like, we had to show that to him. We had to show him how to, like, choose clubs. And, uh, and then we made our way through the course playing for a few hours together. And by the end of the day, we were all shaking our heads when we realized that Ryan beat each one of us. And that's what remarkable people can do, right? They can have this wonderful gift of exposing our own weaknesses. And why is it important that we see this about Jesus? Because it's not just important for us to learn to trust Jesus that we, that, and that we see him as utterly capable. It's also important for you and me to see him as utterly capable in ways that we are not. And this is significant for us because I would propose that we are all growing up, we are raising our kids and forging our existence in a common cultural ethos of self-sufficiency. It's like the instinctive movement of our hearts to measure up in some way. To measure up in some way, to achieve, to measure ourselves against other people, right? And in order for us to really appreciate what Jesus did for us, we just simply have to learn to see that our redemption and our salvation are things that we can't accomplish for ourselves, but they have to be done for us. And that's what moves our hearts to gratefulness, the humility that comes with it, like gratefully receiving the grace that's offered to us by Jesus Christ. And so we have observations about his purpose. And we have observations about how remarkable he is in this story. But I would propose to you that that's just not enough. It's not enough to know what he came for and how remarkable he is. For this to be a truly encouraging story, we also have to hear something about who he came for. Like who matters to him? Who who does he belong to? And who is this man, who is this boy who's going to become a man devoted to over the course of his life? Now, I need you, and so this is observations about his devotion, and I need you to hang with me. This is like, this is like the luxurious part of the sermon, okay? So hang with me as I go through this. Early in the passage, this is really important, verse 21, early in the passage they had him circumcised as a newborn. Now that's critical, because it cemented his identity as a member of God's covenant people. Like he's a, he's a member of their community here. And we also see that they made a sacrifice for him in the temple according to the, to the Levitical law, that ev- for every firstborn son, a family would offer a sacrifice. There's a notable exception in the Bible, and it's the prophet Samuel, whose mother Hannah devoted this boy to the, to the law and did not offer a sacrifice Uh, sorry, devoted him to the Lord and did not offer a sacrifice. Why? Because the sacrifice, in a way, was like ransoming the the boy back to herself. And that's what's being done, is is, uh, Jesus is being like re-received back into the family. Okay, so hear that. Um, 
and so he's presented and bought back. Um, and, uh, and it's clear, add to that, all of that, that it's clear that Mary and Joseph see him as their son that they're responsible for, right? The story goes on to say that he was submissive to his parents, that he accepted his own parents uh, uh, and uh, was submissive to them. So he sees himself as belonging to his parents, okay? So we see in this passage that Jesus is an important part uh, of his own family and his own covenant people of God, okay? He belongs to them. And then we have this story that's a parent's worst nightmare, right? I will tell you, that, and I have my own, our family has our own stories about this, but uh, I, have, I haven't actually yet met many parents who don't have a story where they, like, lost their child at some point, you know? Like, where, where is he? I thought you had him. And that's the story here, is that in the caravan on the way back to their town, Nazareth, somewhere along the way, they realized they didn't know where Jesus was. At the end of the day, Mary and Joseph are looking at each other saying, I thought you had him. No, I thought you had him. Uh, and most observers of this story, most common commentators of this story, are quick to point out that there was a part of, they were a part of a caravan, that there were plenty of cousins and aunts and uncles, lots of people that would have had eyes on Jesus, and it would have been not, it would have been very easy to go a whole day without like necessarily knowing where your kid is. You just assume that somebody else in the caravan had him. And this story actually isn't isn't about Mary and Joseph's neglect as parents. It's actually about how they found Jesus in the temple. And when they locate him there, Mary, appropriately, I would think, gives her, her, like, offers her, how could you do this to us? Do you understand the pain that you caused my father and I? Like, that's, that's an instinctive motherly response that I totally appreciate. What's interesting is Jesus says, why would you look for me anywhere else? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I mean, with some kind of precocious wisdom, Jesus is saying, I belong here. Why would you find me anywhere else? Every time I read this story, I've wondered, like, is there a conflict of loyalties here for Jesus? Like, who does he belong to? Does he belong with his family and the covenant people of God? Or does he belong in the temple? with God the Father. Who does he belong to? And this is incredibly important for us to wrap our heads around because who you belong to is who you're devoted to. And the answer to that question is yes. He is utterly and completely devoted to God the Father and his mission to see his world renewed. And because that is true... Jesus is utterly and completely devoted to you. That when he looks at you, he sees somebody he wants to win back for himself. And when you trust Jesus, you are trusting the weight of your life to someone whose commitment to you is absolute and unbreakable. It's unshakable and it's unflinching. Jesus is coming after you because he loves you. He's completely devoted to you. Because God the Father and the Holy Spirit are completely devoted to you. So we're seeing this remarkable child. And he grows up to be a remarkable man. But when we look at Jesus, we're looking at someone whose care and determination for your good is just outstanding. It's even more, it even displays 
it even displaces the way or outpaces the way that you care about yourself. And we have to understand this because right now we're looking at a baby who's born in swaddling cloths. But soon, after a short life, we're going to see him wrapped in a linen cloth. And the same baby that was bought back with a sacrifice that ransomed him back into his family is going to be the sacrifice that ransoms you back from our enslavement to, to sin. And right now we're seeing this remarkable child who's going to grow up to become a remarkable man, and we will see that his greatest triumph is seen in his embrace of weakness. That the God-man became low so that you and I could be lifted up and be with God forever, the one whom we were made for. And there's one reason, there's one reason that he allowed himself to be sacrificed, because he belongs to you, and so he gave himself for you, because he loves you. All right, one more thing. I'll land the plane. Why are these people able to see these things about Jesus? Why are Simeon and Anna able to see these things? Why are the people that surround Jesus able to see such remarkable things about an eight-day-old or a 12-year-old boy? There's only one answer to that question. It's because God wants them to. It says, it says really clearly, the Holy Spirit was revealing these things to Simeon and Anna. The Holy Spirit was upon them, and, uh, and the same Holy Spirit is the one who reveals to you and me the truth about who Jesus is and what he came for. And listen, if you're ever wondering about why this church exists, if you are ever wondering about what your pastors want for you, if you're ever wondering about what Jeff and his team want for you when they're serving you on Sunday mornings, if you're ever wondering about what Jessica is, is trying to accomplish when she serves your children or your families, it's, it's this. It's just to humbly cooperate with the Holy Spirit's mission to help you see Jesus. And so the question is before you. When you look at Jesus, what are you seeing? What do you see when you see Jesus coming? Is Christmas a holiday to endure? Is it just a grand old time with some religious meaning attached? Or are you seeing God move heaven and earth to bring you back to himself? What do you see when you see Jesus? Amen. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, teach us to see. Teach us to look at you with eyes of faith that we might be encouraged in seeing Jesus who came for us. And I pray, Lord, that you would encourage our spirits now and protect us. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.